Let's turn to Romans chapter 5 tonight, please. Romans chapter 5. Last uh, Wednesday and Thursday, two messages back-to-back I entitled, Where is Boasting? And then again, Where is Boasting? Tonight is Where Boasting Is. See, it's a little trick there in the words, wordplay. All right, let's take a few moments, which is our SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, Silent Preparation, Lifting up any cares or burdens to the Lord, and he'll sustain you, according to Psalm 55:22. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your unending, steadfast benevolence, otherwise known as your love, demonstrated In Christ Jesus to us, we pray that you will open the eyes of our understanding one more time tonight so that we may see with the eyes of our heart wonderful things in your word of truth. And once again, Father, we know that the sum total of all those wonderful things is the wonderful person of our Savior, Christ Jesus the embodiment of truth. We thank you for this privilege. Thank you for each person here tonight, and we pray that the Spirit of God will make the Word of God real and applicable in everyone's life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. What does soteriology, or salvation, as Paul writes of it, have to do with our present and current situation and our present circumstances? Much in every way, as Paul would say. There's a place for boasting, in fact, in our current situation. The question was asked in 327 by this teacher that opposes Paul's gospel. Where is boasting then? And we explored that question and the answer to it last week. There is a place for boasting, glorying in our current situation. In fact, there's a couple places for it in which boasting finds a place. One is what we would find, we would probably see it unsurprisingly appropriate, while another, though not by any means inappropriate, is nevertheless a surprising place where we would find the right to boast. So Paul says first, as if answering the question posed by the teacher in Romans 3.27, where is boasting then? Paul answers later on in Romans chapter 5 and verse 2 that we boast in the hope of sharing in the glory of God. All of this is really rooted in a passage in Jeremiah 9.23 where the prophet to the nations Jeremiah, he's called the prophet to the nations by God in Jeremiah 1.5. And Paul, of course, is known as the apostle to the nations. Romans 11.13, Galatians 2.8, Romans 15.16 also, where Paul alludes to it. In Jeremiah 9.23, it says, Let not the wise man or the man of intellect boast in his intellect, his capacity to understand. Let not the strong man 
boast in his might or his strength. And let not the wealthy man boast in his wealth, but let him who is going to boast, boast in this, boast in me, that he knows me. And this is what true boasting is. So one place rooted in this truth, where is boasting? We boast in the hope of the glory of God, which is literally, if you add the ellipsis, it means we boast in the hope of sharing the glory of God. Hope is always a confident expectation rooted in the veracity of God. And so it's always a confident expectation of divine good. It's good for the soul, this hope. Much of Paul's writings are invested in dispelling or doing away with eschatological anxiety. We find that eschatological anxiety is simply an angst or an anguish in thinking about the future judgment and what's going to happen when God judges the thoughts of men. And as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he will do it through Jesus Christ. Much of Paul's writing is to allay this eschatological anxiety. The teacher's gospel which says that all the self-seeking will have wrath and all those who seek God will be rewarded with eternal life, his gospel actually foments or engenders eschatological anxiety, as does the majority of what I call American Pelagianism. Pelagius was an an infamous teacher who accented human performance in divine salvation, really almost to the exclusion of God's initiative initiative and completion of salvation in man, Pelagius was fought against by Augustine, by others. And so when we talk about Pelagianism, we're talking about either a works salvation or a salvation that's a combination of works and grace, or a it can even be a justification theory, which we're going to also show you something about in the course of this series. Paul's writings are invested in dispelling, doing away with this eschatological anxiety and providing instead eschatological assurance. Most famous and obvious places are what shall separate us from the love of God. I know that nothing will, Paul says, peril, sword, things present, things to come, things above, things below, things in the principalities and powers of superhuman powers, death, things that happen at death, things that happen after death, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's eschatological assurance. And Paul's use of faith, the use of faith, pistis in all of Paul, has to do with assurance And we're going to show you, and we're going to just kind of narrow this down. I will try to narrow down to the point where it is a vanishing point, where there is no place in Paul's epistles that defines human faith as the means, instrumental or otherwise, of appropriating salvation. But faith always speaks of assurance on our part or of fidelity, mostly the fidelity of Messiah himself. 
We could say that by grace we are saved, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to give himself for us. By grace we have been saved through the mediation of Christ's faithfulness. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any person should boast. And so faithfulness, as the, the scripture is, there's been a tremendous debate, and as far as I'm concerned, it's settled. Pistis Christu. The Pistis Christu debate, it's called the faith of Jesus Christ. Is it an objective genitive or is it a subjective genitive? The argument's gone on for a long time. I'd say probably as long as I've been alive, and that's a long time, I think. Uh, the objective genitive is faith in Jesus Christ as object. The subjective genitive simply is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And the Pistis Christu debate has largely been won. The problem today, one of the big problems today, is there is the academy. That's where people go to college and get their PhDs, and they are often called by God to do that. And they get into theology, and they get into biblical study and biblical interpretation, and they get, they get into what is known as the academy. And the academy is where Luther was, and the academy is where Calvin was. The academy is where more modern scholars like N.T. Wright are, and there are scholars also like Richard Bauckham, or most lately Douglas A. Campbell, whom I regard as the forefront of the ac academia as far as theology and biblical interpretation. In my view, he's on the cutting edge. And... His books, like The Quest for Paul's Gospel, if you're into a shorter book, a little more easy to read than the monster book called The Deliverance of God, that's awesome. It's an awesome book. And his book on framing Paul. The Pistis Christu debate has been one, I'm sure, and very convinced, on the subjective genitive side. And so all of our soteriology has to be reconfigured Christologically. It's all about Christ. It's all Christocentric. It's all about Jesus. I started to say this. The academy is one thing. The church is another. That's where you get pastors and teachers and evangelists. And that's where you get the church and fellowship like this. There has been a rift between the academy and the church. And I think it's time that pastors get motivated to get close to what the academy is revealing in the close study of the scriptures and kind of use the communicative skills they have to communicate the truths that are found in the academy by men with scholarly differentiation of consciousness and communicate it to the church. Because it has been throughout church history that the academy has been about 150 years ahead of the church. So you get great findings in the academy that the church pastors don't teach for years and years and years and sometimes a century or more. And that gap, that rift is being closed. And my intention as a pastor is to close it all up completely and to explore under the direction of the Holy Spirit those findings of the academy and communicate them to the church. And I think that's how the church is going to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we take everything the so-called academy says, 
I've read a lot of stuff I don't agree with from the so-called academy, but there's a lot of good stuff coming out now that's absolutely fantastic. I'm passing it through the scriptures. I'm passing it through what I call LBD or lower blade data to see if it can be verified by a robust engagement with the texts of the scriptures. And I'm finding, I found this one to be one of the most rich and enriching. Pistis Christu, then the subjective genitive wins the debate. It is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, as we've been seeing. And you'll see it more and more, because it's going to be one of my main thrusts in this teaching. So much of Paul's writings dispel eschatological anxiety. You see it already in Romans 2.16, where the teacher's talking about a day when God will judge the secrets of men. And Paul adds, in his little parentheses, according to my gospel, that judgment is through Jesus Christ. And what a comfort that is. To be judged by the one who was crucified for us while we were yet ungodly. That's not half bad. In fact, that's good news. Those who understand the judgment of the eschaton will rejoice in it. As Psalm 98 says, rejoice because the Lord is coming to judge the earth. Rejoice, you heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Rejoice, creation, because the immensity of the redemption that's in Christ Jesus is universal. That is, it envelops all creation. It embraces all humanity, as we are seeing. And we'll illustrate it by engaging the text, as we will tonight again. So much of Paul's writings provide eschatological assurance which is faith. Faith is an eschatological assurance because faith, by its definition, not in Paul, but in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Again, the, object, the subjective wins there. It's not evidence. That would be an objective thing. Faith is not an evidence in me. Faith is an assurance in me of things hoped for. What's hoped for? The glory of God, the sharing of the glory of God, a concrete experience of the upward trajectory of Jesus Christ after his downward trajectory from heaven to incarnation to obedience to the extent of death to crucifixion to burial to resurrection ascension and session enthroned at the right hand of God and that's what I want to emphasize also tonight that we are incorporated or you can call it baptized if you want, by the Spirit into the trajectory of Jesus Christ, both downward and upward. That's why Paul said, I was crucified with Christ. That's why Paul said, I was buried with him, and so were you, buried with him in baptism, that is, in the incorporation of us into Christ by the Spirit, not water baptism. The Spirit is the baptizer that counts. As 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, you have all been baptized by one spirit into Christ. And when the, the Holy Spirit incorporates us or baptizes us into Christ, we begin to share his history. We actually are in his history. Our history is his history. His story, history, is our story. And that's how far and how deep we are, we are identified with him. So then, Paul 
provides eschatological assurance. Eschatological anxiety is fomented and encouraged by the teacher and by many present doctrinal systems of our own time, including what I call American and European Pelagianism and other forms of soteriology constructed through Western contractualism, the idea of a contract. God says, you do this, I'll reward you with this. The teacher says, you seek after glory and immortality and incorruption, which is God, and he will reward you with eternal life. Romans 2, 7 and 8. That's not Paul. Paul doesn't contradict himself. But... That's Western contractualism's interpretation is that, well, God gave us the law and we despaired of trying to keep it. And so he lowers the bar and tells us now there's a new contract. If you believe, I'll give you eternal life. And that sounds good. And it's what I prescribe. I I subscribe to that doctrine because I literally didn't know anything else. I was brought up on it. I cut my teeth on it. It's a Lutheran kind of interpretation of the gospel. It's a reformational kind. But there's a new sheriff in town. There's a, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he's the one that is the center of this whole thing. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not the faith of man. It's a Christocentric gospel, not anthropocentric, which is Pelagian and Pelagianism. Jesus Christ isn't sidelined on this one. He's at the very heart and soul and center. And all soteriology, which is the study, the theological study of salvation, has to be, in this understanding, reinterpreted Christologically. Which is why Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Now, in Paul, faith is largely construed or interpreted as assurance. And is not presented as the means, instrumental or otherwise. It's not the instrumental means. It's not the substantial means for appropriating salvation. Again, by its definition elsewhere, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of, unthings, of things unseen. The conviction of things unseen. It is assurance and it's conviction. I'm convicted or convinced. I have the conviction that all of creation, you know, I don't see this now, but I have the conviction that all of creation, which is groaning in its anticipation of the manifestation of the sons of God, is one day going to be totally liberated into the freedom of the children of God, the glorious freedom of the children of God. This really combines my faith, which is assurance of that hope for thing, and my conviction of that unseen thing. That's faith. If the scripture only has one time where it actually takes out the time and says faith is, dot, 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 you'd think if it was all important as it is to the Lutheran reading of the gospel in Paul, that it would say faith is the means of appropriating salvation. Wouldn't you think that if that's the case, if the Lutheran interpretation of the gospel is correct and God allows you to despair of following the law to be saved. And so he lowers the bar and says, just believe and be saved. 
And that's the Lutheran reading. Although Luther probably didn't even totally subscribe to that. It's just called that probably unfairly. You'd think if that was the correct construal of the gospel, that the one time it's defined in the Bible, faith would be the means of appropriating eternal salvation. But it doesn't say that. It says faith is assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And that's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 5. We'll get to it in a minute. It's the conviction of things unseen. Now, in Romans 5, 2, Paul says, if you're there, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. What he means is we boast in the hope of our sharing of it. In Hebrews 2, I'm kind of stuck on Hebrews a little bit tonight, but Hebrews 2, 10 to 13, Scripture talks about calling many sons into glory. If he's going to call many sons into glory, then those sons can anticipate glorification. As many as he foreknew. And you can't say he foreknew them as believing. It just says as many as he foreknew. Before a condition could be met by you, God foreknew you, called you, justified you, glorified you. Romans 8.30. So, if we've been delivered by the faithfulness of Christ, we have something to anticipate, which is glorification, which is sharing the glory of God and sharing the glorious image of Jesus Christ, who is glorified now. He took on himself the human condition and died in it and rose from the dead into another age. He literally rose into an eschatological age for us. In fact, we could say as us also. What we most hope for then, there's a lot of things we hope for in this life. But what we most hope for is glorification, something guaranteed to us in Christ Jesus. The hope of sharing the glory of God is where boasting is. You can boast about that. The reason for it, it has a home right here, boasting in the hope of the glory of God, because it does not involve human capacity. It does not involve human achievement or human appropriation. It is a boasting in the Lord. So here's where boasting is. It's a boasting in the Lord. Something that was prescribed heartily by Jeremiah, hoping in the Lord, boasting in the Lord. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, echoed in Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, 17. The one who boasts must boast in the Lord. So boasting in the hope of sharing the glory of God is a boast in the Lord. My expectation of sharing in Christ's glory has nothing to do with a boasting in me. It has nothing to do with, I think I'm going to achieve this in the future. It is a boast in the fact that the Lord has achieved this already for me. This is not just written here in Romans. The one who boasts must boast in the Lord, and boasting in the hope of sharing the glory of God is a boast in the Lord. Moreover, as the psalmist said, and I love this passage, in Psalm 61.5, the psalmist, as he often does, talks to himself, and he says, My soul, be at rest in God alone 
for my hope is from him. My hope is from him. So we can boast in our hope of the glory of God. Again, boasting is right at home here in Romans 5, 2, because it boasts in a hope that comes from the Lord and is guaranteed by the Lord. Paul elsewhere assures people in Christ of this coming glory. I'm thinking particularly of Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, he is your life, he says. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you will be revealed with him in glory. In glory. All glorious. Like Psalm 45, the king's daughter She's all glorious within. When Christ, who is your life, appears at that same time, says the Greek text, at that same time, you will also be revealed with him in glory. Now, until that moment, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. The glory that we'll one day share is a hidden thing now as it was when Jesus was here. Now, until that moment, our lives are hidden with Christ in God, says Colossians 3.3. So we are not yet revealed, manifested dramatically, to be God's sons. Romans 8.23 says, all creation is groaning. And the Holy Spirit groans with all creation. And we groan with it. Romans 8.22, Romans 8.26. We groan with it until the manifestation of the sons of God. It waits for it. All creation isn't waiting for the greenies. It's tired of the greenies. It doesn't believe in a, an unsettled false science. There's fake news, there's fake science. There's a fake science that puts an alarm, alarmist mentality in people about the environment, but that's all because of a power grab that's going on. But all creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God in glory. They'll take care of creation very well. So our lives are now hid with Christ in God, and we live in an anticipation. In fact, our lives may be beset right now with many inglorious things. Things that are not glorious at all. And that's well and good, and that should be. I'll tell you why. And our lives may be constricted by various pressures and difficulties. Pressures and difficulties, persecution and slander and all the rest of it that goes with someone who preaches the word, is actually a sign of an authentic ministry. It's, the authentic, it's a sign of authentic ministry. Paul said, we are always delivered over to death for the sake of Christ, that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our body. Paul understands that he has been incorporated into the downward and the upward trajectory. When it comes to our current lives in this present mortal state, the emphasis lies upon our participation in his downward trajectory. That's why we can boast in another area that we don't usually think about. It's kind of surprising. In our difficulties and pressures and tribulations, we boast. Why? Because we recognize that we are actually participating in the history of Jesus Christ 
by experiencing an identification with his downward trajectory, which was suffering. Now, let's follow this a little bit further, because believe it or not, this study of Better Call Paul has its most profound and powerful impact in your lives where you are in the trenches right now. This is where it has its greatest impact. It's not just what people like to call pie in the sky, which is usually the word people use for the hope of the glory of God because they have no idea what it is. So our lives may be, in fact, it's likely that they are, at least from time to time, beset with many inglorious things. And we may be constricted by various pressures and difficulties. And this brings us to the area in which we might not expect to find boasting. There's a second area of boasting. So let's begin with Romans 5.1 just to get up to speed, and I'll show you the second area of boasting. We boast in the hope of the glory of God, but we also boast in something that's kind of surprising. Being delivered, Paul says, accordingly, by faithfulness. Not justified by faith, being delivered accordingly by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is what he means in Romans 4.25, the faithfulness of the righteous one in Romans 1.17. Therefore, being delivered accordingly by faithfulness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access into the grace wherein we stand, and we boast in the hope of sharing the glory of God. But not only that, Paul's always going beyond, isn't he? Not only that, we also boast in our tribulations. Difficult circumstances is how we'd put it. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In other words, have high morale. Your tribulation in this world is your identification with me, your participation in my sufferings, in my downward trajectory, which guarantees that you are going to be partakers concretely and really and even bodily in my upward trajectory. That's why we can boast. Because my difficulties at this present time are the guarantee of my glorification. They are the guarantee because if I'm partaking actually an experience with Christ's downward trajectory, then I'm guaranteed in Christ to be a participant in his upward trajectory. And that's a guarantee. So I can boast in the circumstances because they are the proof and the guarantee of the hope of glory. They go together. Through whom we also have access, verse 2, Jesus Christ, through whom we have access into the grace wherein we, grace wherein we stand, and we boast in the hope of the sharing of glory of God. But not only that, we also boast in our difficult circumstances. Where is boasting then if we are delivered by grace through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ? Where then can we boast, this writer says, this teacher says? Where is boasting found? It's nowhere found in soteriology. It's nowhere found in appropriating our salvation, but it is found here. Having appropriated our salvation, we are now participants in the trajectory of Jesus Christ, and therefore we can boast in our difficulties. Now watch how this develops. It is important to note at this time that we have been incorporated into the twofold trajectory of Jesus to be sharers 
of his story. We are sharers of his story. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul said. I'm a sharer of his story. I am incorporated into his downward trajectory. Nevertheless, I live. And yet it is not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Christ is your life. And the life that I now live in the flesh, in this present mortal state, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. There's Pistis Christu again. Faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's important to note then we've been incorporated into the twofold trajectory of Jesus. He comes down from heaven. That's divine mission one. He says, there's no one who's ever ascended into heaven, but he who first descended in John 3, 13 and 14. And so his downward trajectory continues into incarnation, where he is born in a stable, as we know, or in the foyer of an inn in Jerusalem. His incarnation, his life of obedience, which is fidelity or faithfulness or obedience to the extent of death, death even by crucifixion. And the trajectory downward continues to burial, where he's buried, and then the upward trajectory, resurrection, ascension, enthronement. We are incorporated into this whole trajectory. So in a sense, we have already been risen together with him in one sense, but it's only an inaugural sense. And we do experience in some measure the power that raised Jesus from the dead in our higher integration of human living, but it's only inaugurally, and it's mixed up with a whole bunch of inglorious things and circumstances. But we are partakers of both trajectories. Crucified, raised with him, Colossians 3.1. Buried with him, Colossians 2.12. Raised with him, Colossians 3.1. Ascended together with him, Ephesians 2.5. Seated together with him in the heavenly places. But the accent falls experientially in this life in a partaking of his downward trajectory. Thank God for it. Some people go through the most intense sufferings. We wonder how they bear up under it. And nothing, God does not, he is faithful. He does not suffer or allow people to suffer beyond what they are enabled to suffer by his grace. It's all an identification with the son's downward trajectory and the suffering is of Messiah. So we've been incorporated by the Spirit. Use the word baptism if you want to, as long as you understand that it ain't water. When he talks about baptized by one Spirit into Christ, there is one baptism and one Spirit, says Ephesians 4, 4, and 5. There's one Spirit, there's one baptism, there's one baptism, and it's Spirit baptism. The Holy Spirit's part in the Trinitarian act of salvation is baptizing you into the trajectory of the Son, incorporating it, making your history, his history, his story, your story. So we have been incorporated by the Spirit into Christ's downward trajectory and into his upward trajectory. But our present difficulties represent our participation. Notice that word. It's going to be used frequently our participation in the downward trajectory of Christ. 
D.A. Campbell calls it martyrological. This is martyrological. The downward trajectory, martyr, as in martyr, illogical. It's actually a word we can use, martyrological. It's the study of Revelation. Rev, the book is largely martyrological. It emphasizes the martyrs, those at the foot of the altar of God. And the martyrological is the downward trajectory. Jesus Christ is called the faithful witness, but witness is martyr. In Revelation 1.5 and Revelation 3.14, the faithful martyr. And we, in his martyrological faithfulness, we participate in that martyrological downward trajectory. Our sufferings in this present life are that. Even the sufferings that are surprisingly bizarre that we didn't expect that we'd have to suffer. Certain, there are certain things I've experienced as a pastor in the past 38 years that are way beyond I would ever expect to have to experience. And they are things that some of you are well aware of. There are things inside that are anxieties related to the churches and to people and the concern for the flock, etc. All of that is my participation in the downward trajectory of Jesus Christ, which only makes me anticipate the inevitability of the upward trajectory in which I will concretely, not just so-called positionally, but concretely, and so will you, partake in a bodily resurrection and a catching up into a state that is far greater than anything we could have imagined to share the glory of God, which simply means to be totally, completely human like the totally human being is Jesus Christ. Our present difficulties represent our participation, therefore, in the downward trajectory of Christ. Call it martyrological. From heaven, his downward trajectories from heaven to a partaking of the human condition, he took on the precise likeness of humanity, in the likeness of sinful flesh, he took on death to bury it. We boast in our present difficulties, listen carefully, because they are an indication of our participation in Christ's downward trajectory. And at the same time, they are the guarantee of our concrete and actual participation in his upward trajectory. That's why we boast in it. Our difficulties. He has been resurrected, caused to ascend. He sits enthroned at the right side of the Father. Now we have already been incorporated into that upward trajectory, making it concretely to be experienced inevitable. It's inevitable. And so we have been incorporated in what we might call an inaugurated or an inaugural sense to be consummated only in bodily resurrection. What we mostly experience in this life, this has been my experience, and in our present mortal condition is a participation in the downward trajectory of this, of Christ. You wouldn't know it by the prosperity gospel preachers who don't even speak about Jesus Christ. He's not, he's not sidelined. He's not even anywhere near the ball field. It's just you, God, planted.
planting seeds, prospering. I don't even want to get into that. It's horrible. So what we mostly experience in this life and what Paul accentuates really is a participation in the downward trajectory of Christ. This is, first of all, a great privilege. For as Paul says in Philippians 1.29, to you it has been graciously granted for the sake of Christ not only to believe in him, which is to participate in his own fidelity, but also to suffer on behalf of him. That is, to participate in his downward trajectory of suffering. Equal to you and me having the privilege of participating in the son's fidelity and obedience with sin and death as powers away from us. The oppressive power of sin and death. The gospel is liberational. But it's not politically liberational. It liberates us from the superhuman powers that dominate mankind called sin, capital S, as a power. Death, capital D, as a power. Death is a, is a power that you can actually say hey to. Like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, whatever that was called. They said, hey, death. Well, Paul said it too. Hey, death, where's your sting now? He's talking to a personification, to a real superhuman power. The gospel I'm preaching is liberational, not in the sense of liberation theology in the liberal sense, but it's liberational from the sense of liberating us from the superhuman control of sin and death and the Adamic ontology and also supernatural beings called principalities and powers. Sometimes you see in human resentment, in human acts of criminal acts or in human anger or rage, sometimes you see simply an intensified Adamic ontology undisguised. Sometimes you see a demonically stirred up Adamic ontology. Sometimes you see a demonic use of human beings. That's what evil is. But we have been liberated from principalities and powers and their control. We've been liberated from sin as a power over us and from the flesh or Adamic ontology and from death. We've been, that's what liberation means. So yeah, my theology is liberational. Because it's liberation from the oppressive powers of sin, death, principalities and powers, and the Adamic ontology. So, what we mostly experience in this life, in our present mortal condition, is participation in the downward trajectory of Christ. Participation in the glory is yet future. But when we get to that yet future glory... All of our sufferings of the past will be in the past. Our, we will have always been seen as identifying with Christ in his downward trajectory, but it's all over now in glory. That's why Paul said, I'm convinced that the things, the glory that follows is incomparable. The things that we suffer in this age are not worthy of a comparison with the things that will follow in glory in Romans 8.18. Followed and starting. This is just an uncut diamond. I'm just trying to get the diamond out of the rough here before we even polish it. So this is the part of the doctrine that I'm trying to lead us into right now. Again, in Philippians 1:29, Paul says it's just as much a privilege that we are able to participate in Christ's fidelity, and that we are to participate in the suffering of Christ. To suffer on behalf of Him is exactly 
to be celebrated and grateful for than participation in his fidelity, his faithfulness. Put these together, and our Christian life is essentially a participation in Messiah's fidelity through many different trials and snares, etc. And it's a relentless, steadfast fidelity that works by love. Don't forget, it works by love. Galatians 5, 6, and the love is God's love. Our faithfulness is a participation in Christ's faithfulness that works by God's love. So, to you it has been graciously granted for the sake of Christ not only to believe in him, meaning participate in his fidelity, but also to suffer on behalf of him, or to participate in his downward trajectory of suffering. What if we interpreted our sufferings in this life that way? then we would see them, one, as a privilege of participating in Christ's downward trajectory, two, as the guarantee, all the more sharp and real to us, of our glorification and our sharing of the glory of God. In fact, Paul emphatically aspired to know the power of Christ's resurrection which we do experience, don't get me wrong, we do experience a measure of the, the power that raised Jesus from the dead in our higher integration of human living. I'm experiencing a measure of that right now, or I wouldn't be able to speak to you. I don't know how to speak five words in front of three people without stumbling all over them. If you don't believe that, look at me trying to do an announcement. Well, it looks like, uh, what are we uh, going to do here? We're going to, um, oh, yeah, a Salvation Army uh, collect, you know. The, I, I don't know how to talk in front of people. I would melt whenever I'd have to do a presentation in biology because I, I don't know what anything about biology, for one thing. But so there is a measure of the experience of the resurrection trajectory of Jesus Christ because it's God in us willing and doing of his own good pleasure, his own power. We are empowered from within. But the emphasis falls upon our present experience of his downward trajectory. I hate to tell you if you've been brought up in the prosperity gospel, but that's where the accent falls. It wouldn't even be wrong if a Christian were to say, in all my life on this earth, I have experienced more sorrow than joy. Now, you would be afraid to say that, in most Christian groups, because they would say, no, 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 you're never supposed to experience sorrow. You're supposed to only experience that. If you said that, you may be exactly right. I mean, if I was going to balance the feelings of sorrow I've had in this life with the feelings of joy I've had in this life, it might be equal, but I think the accent might fall on the sorrowful part, but it's not that bad because it's a an identification with the downward trajectory of Jesus Christ, a man acquainted with grief and sorrows. He didn't live by it. He was, he was marked by sorrow. He wasn't defined by that sorrow, but he entered into the human condition, the Adamic ontology. He became sin. If we understood our sufferings as a privileged participation, in the downward trajectory of Jesus Christ, in a concrete, real, and practical way, our whole perspective would change on our sufferings, and there would be a kind of a 
boasting and kind of a kind of a mystical, bizarre, secret kind of joy bubbling up and saying, this is an indication of some glory to come. And if the suffering's really deep, this is an indication of a really awesome glory to come. If we knew this, we could counsel people that are experiencing severe suffering, that are surrounded by all kinds of pressures and sufferings, that are maybe even suffering because of their own sinfulness. We could counsel them with compassion and bear their burden and so fulfill the Torah of Christ. Being conformed to his death, Paul said, this is astonishing. Paul emphatically aspired to know the power of his resurrection in Philippians 3.10. Look at that later on. Which we do experience in some meaningful inaugural way in this life. And he said, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And equally, the fellowship, which is participation, koinonia, of his sufferings. What an aspiration. Do you aspire to the American dream? Not, I don't even know what it is. I aspire to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. I aspire to know him himself. I aspire to know the power of his resurrection. I aspire, Paul said, I'm not going to say this yet, conformity to his death. That's not a positional thing. Paul wanted his life to conform to the death of Jesus that he might also somehow attain to in a great meaningful measure in this life, the resurrection out from the dead. In other words, Paul says it's possible in this life, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, participating in the fidelity of Christ. It's possible in this life to reach a sense or a kind of a precocious sense of what it's going to be like in bodily resurrection when you are out from under the power of death as a power in your life and out from under the power of sin and when you have put off the Adamic ontology. There is a kind of ex anastasis, a kind of resurrection out from death before there's a resurrection bodily out from the dead. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 3.10 to 11. Being conformed to his death. Read that sometimes in Philippians 3.10. It's really the last thing he says because he's saying, look, being conformed to his death was an avid aspiration of the apostle. Why? Because this is the very passage way, the passage way, not the biblical passage, but the very passage way to attaining the resurrection out from the power of death and sin and the Adamic ontology, which we call the flesh, in some meaningful, concrete measure in this life. On top of this, it is these very sufferings that serve as a guarantee of the glory that follows because they are a participation in Messiah's own sufferings. Paul put it this way in Romans 8, 17. And since we are children, we are also heirs. Heirs of God on the one hand, and joint heirs with Christ on the other hand. Seeing that we suffer with him, in order that we also are to be glorified with him. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, one of my favorite passages 
and for ministry especially. For he, Paul says, Christ Jesus, was crucified in weakness. That defines our present status, weakness, asthenia, radical human incapacity. Pelagianism assumes a a human capacity. Paul's gospel is convinced of radical human incapacity. So there's nothing to boast about anthropocentrically. All the boasting has to be in the Lord. Our weakness At first, we bemoan it, but when we realize that we're partakers of the downward trajectory of Jesus Christ as privileged with that, what we once bemoaned, we now celebrate. As Paul said, I now celebrate my weakness. I heard a word from the Lord. The risen Christ spoke to me. The risen Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is realized in weakness. Weakness. Again, 2 Corinthians 13, 4, for he, Christ Jesus, was crucified in weakness. He took on the human condition and took on the asthenia of it. But he lives by the power of God. Incidentally, asthenia means the total absence of strength. It is a radical incapacity. He took on our radical incapacity, being constricted and nailed to a tree. He was taking on the human condition in its radical. You know who the first, you know who the real person that was saved is the righteous one. Many are the afflictions of the righteous one, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The most important salvation in the Bible is the salvation of Jesus by God. And when Jesus was delivered by God through resurrection after death by crucifixion, Well, we could say that the whole human race was included in him. I know that's a shocker, but believe me, we'll iron it out and show it in the scriptures. For he was crucified in weakness and lives, but he lives by the power of God. This is one of my most favorite declarations. We also are weak in him. In him. We also are weak in him. As the newman and outu. But toward you, Paul said, we will live together with him by God's power. Face to face with you, we will live together with him by God's power. He was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. That's the downward and the upward. We are also weak in him. We're experiencing the downward. But we will also live together with him. By the power of God. That's the upward trajectory. We experience that a little bit inaugurally and sometimes in some meaningful measure in this life. You will and are. But not concretely, actually, and bodily until the resurrection. But you can believe it's guaranteed. There's no eschatological anxiety in Paul's epistles. It's only in American Pelagianism where human capacity is assumed and therefore human responsibility is the essential part of the gospel instead of the divine initiative. I'm convinced that he who began this work in you will perform it until the day of its completion. Of course, 
previous to 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul announced that he decided to boast in his weakness. Where's boasting? In my weakness. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. If I were to give presidential advice, that's what I would say to the president. You don't have to fight over things that are said to you. You simply, in fact, the Bible says, don't praise yourself. If someone is going to speak highly of you, let it be somebody else, not you yourself. So that get that off the docket. And if your ways please the Lord, then you're going to make your enemies to be at peace with you. And our ways please the Lord when we follow after peace with all men and when we don't try to fight battles. I'm not, and I, again, I'm not castigating our, our new president. I would say this is a letter to any president. I would say this is a letter to any king, and you are kings and priests. So, let's look at Romans 5. I told you to turn there, so I'm going to be fair to you and read it by how I translated it. Romans 5, 1 to 5, reads this way. My translation from the Greek text. Being delivered accordingly by faithfulness. That's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as we're learning. We have peace with God. You could say that's reconciliation with God. You could say that that is shalom. Or you could say that that is salvation itself with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom, that's Christ, we also have access into the grace wherein we stand, and we boast in the hope of sharing the glory of God. That's where boasting is, where boasting is. But not only that, we also boast in our difficult circumstances. And I have in a bracket, that's our participation in the downward martyrological trajectory of Jesus Christ, which serves as a kind of guarantee at the same time of our participation in his upward trajectory. When you look at Jesus Christ crucified retrospectively, you see retrospectively that that was the absolute guarantee of his resurrection. That's what the point of this is. Then it says this, knowing assuredly, knowing assuredly that tribulation brings about patient endurance. That is, these difficult circumstances result in your participation in patient endurance of Messiah, of Christ's own patient endurance. And patient endurance produces approval because the scripture says in Hebrews 11.2, by it, faithfulness, participation in Messiah's faithfulness, by it, the presbyteroi, the elders, obtained a good report. For God is pleased and therefore approves of those by faith. So your faithful participation in Christ's fidelity through tribulation produces approval from God. An approval that you sense. And because you sense that approval in difficulties, it yields to hope. Hope. And what does it go on to say? Patient endurance produces approval and approval hope. Moreover, this hope is not a shame because the love of God has already been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was gifted to us. And here's where we're going. Maybe even tomorrow night, maybe later. For while we were still helpless, my next question is where's the condition? Where's the condition we have to meet? While we were still helpless, 
having radical human incapacity. At the appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. Only rarely, Paul goes on to say, someone dies for an honest person. He says, but once in a while you hear about a, someone who may dare to die for a benevolent person. Once in a great while that happens. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were, that word is ontone, that's ontology. While we were still in the Adamic ontology and everything about us contradicted with hostility, his love, the love that gave his son, while we were yet still hamartolon, indicating the special hostility of our sinfulness against God in our Adamic ontology. While we were in that state, Christ died for us. You say, I wasn't even born then yet. Yeah, so where's the condition? And you and I were in that state by being in Adam. That's when Christ died. That's when his faithful obedience to the extent of death became for us. Christ died for us. So I'm going to ask this question and we'll close. Where is the condition to be met by hopeless, helpless humankind or by any individual at any time in order to appropriate justification? Where's the condition? It's nowhere. There's no condition. This is an unconditional soteriological act in Christ for the human race enacted at Calvary and Calvary, the Christ event, not only enacted at Calvary, but the whole event of the Christ event from incarnation to a faithful obedience to the extent of death to a bear, to a death and burial and resurrection, ascension and enthronement. That whole Christ event is a divinely initiated, divinely completed Trinitarian Christocentric act on behalf of mankind without condition placed upon humankind to appropriate that salvation. That's a gospel unchained. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Thank you for the gospel unchained. And as I said today, as I thought of you, Father, thank God, God is love. And love actually by its definition means unlimited benevolence. God is Unlimited, steadfast, unshakable benevolence. And I thank you for that, Father. And you're proving that through your word. Help us to understand that that which we go through in terms of suffering in this life and many inglorious events that surround us are merely the privilege of sharing in the downward trajectory of of Jesus Christ who took on himself the conditions of the Adamic ontology and sin, and death, and principalities, and powers, and overcame them, so that we might have a reason to boast.